A compressed and explosive individual whose irate face appeared so incongruously above the scalloped edges of his nightgown was clearly no Albert or Edward, and certainly no Algernon, and Attila the Hun, though suitable, was unlikely to be acceptable to the gentleman on whom her livelihood depended. She called the baby Guy, and for his surname used that of a group of islands off the Northumbrian coast which she had visited as a child with her fisherman father, the Farns. A relative lull followed while Guy Farn primed his muscles, coordinated his limbs, and secured a few basic necessities in the way of teeth and hair. Then, some three months earlier than expected, he began to crawl and subsequently to walk. Life had now begun in earnest. Speculation about the ancestry of their babies was something that Matron and her hard-working assistants seldom permitted themselves. Not one of their foundlings had ever been traced or claimed, and in turning them out to be clean, God-fearing and suitable for work as domestic servants or labourers, the staff of the orphanage was doing all it could. With Guy Farn, however, it was different. As he progressed from child-battering to arson, including a little grievous bodily harm and possession of unlawful weapons on the way, there was an attempt to prove that this particular baby could not possibly have been English. Well, it doesn't look English, does he? argued Matron's assistant, and him being found in the docks like that. I mean, there's boats from all over coming there. Aye, it could be anything with those cheekbones and his eyes set like that. Oh, there's all sorts you find where there are ships, agreed Cook. Even Lithuanians, she added darkly. A tendency to blame Lithuania increased amongst the staff of the biker orphanage as Guy Farn reached the age of three, four, five. Though you can't really say there's any actual malice in him, said Matron, bandaging the leg of a fat girl he had bitten in the calf. I mean, Maisie was bullying little Dora. This was true, but the staff found it cold comfort. It was also true that when Billy was carried in with concussion because Guy had knocked him against a brick wall, he had been tying a tin can to the tail of a puppy that belonged to Matron's sister, and that Guy had stolen a gold watch from a corpulent governor's back pocket, only to present it immediately to the aged boiler man who had a birthday. True, all true, but when Guy reached his sixth year, Matron decided that enough was enough and looked about for a suitable victim. Her choice fell, as in the manner of fairy stories, on a poor widow named Martha Hodge. Mrs. Hodge had lost her husband when very young in an accident in one of the shipyards. Since then, she had fostered very successfully one little girl with partial hearing for whom she had found a job with a kind lady as a housemaid and another girl who was now working happily in the country. Matron accordingly wrote a letter in her neat copper plate to Mrs. Hodge, suggesting that she might like to foster another child, 
and reminding her that the three and six paid weekly by the parish had now risen to a munificent five shillings, enabling those who took up fostering to make a reasonable profit. Mrs. Hodge had not found this to be so, but she nevertheless put on her hat and coat, and on arrival at the orphanage told Matron respectfully that she was willing, but it had to be a little girl. For without a man to help me, ma'am, I'd me think I can deal with a wee lad. Matron repressed a sigh, and said she saw her point. However, if you'll just look at the boy now you're here. Guy was led in, glowering, and stood before her. At the time of this encounter, he was six and a half years old. Entirely without hope or expectation, he looked at Mrs. Hodge.